Mark chapter 11, verses 27. We're going to go through chapter 12, verse um, 12. So let me uh, pray and, uh, and read. Or Actually, that's opposite. Let me read and then pray. Verse 27. And they came to Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Heaven was another way of saying God being Jewish. He didn't really just say it. He used the word God all the time. So they said heaven. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. They discussed it with one another, saying, Well, if we say he's from heaven, he will say, Then why did, did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the people. For they all held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus this real profound answer, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. This parable is directly connected to what he just said. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. Still he had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is his heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest Jesus, but feared the people. So they perceived that he had, because they perceived that the parable was against them. So they left him and went away. That's our text this morning. Let's, let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we desperately need your help this morning in um, unlocking or kind of revealing this parable to us. I pray that we would all take this parable and this, and this, this teaching to heart this morning. That no matter where we're at in our, in our walk in life or walk with you or wherever we find ourselves this morning, that we would ask ourselves really difficult questions, even though that might be very hard today, about where we're at and what kind of things are we, are we holding on to that we shouldn't be holding on to. I know that there's a, a war in a lot of us this morning, the things that we really want to do and the ways that we want to get them, and, and there's this wrestling and this fighting, and I pray that there'd be surrender today. That, and there's any point, any part of our lives, whether that be our our relationship, our relational life, or our work life, or our future, or our education, or whatever, where we're rejecting you. We're not allowing you to come into that part of our lives, because we think that we are owners of that part of our lives. I pray that you would come in, and that you would radically save us, that you would become the cornerstone of our lives. Let me pray this for your glory, and I ask that you would anoint me this morning. I need your help so desperately. 
We want to hear from God today. So speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> the book of Mark, we've been saying forever now, I can say that, um, is the story about the real and authentic and genuine Jesus. The book of Mark starts like this. If you were not here at the very beginning when we started last year, Mark 1.1 starts like this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This sentence is what makes the book of Mark so very fascinating. When you just open up the book, right at the very beginning, from the opening line, Mark lets everyone who's reading in on who Jesus is. And in on who the gospel, what the gospel is. Everyone knows. So as soon as you open up the book of Mark, right there, this is Jesus, he's the Son of God, and this is the gospel. Everybody knows it. But nobody in the book of Mark knows it. So there's this dramatic irony in the book as you're reading it. You and I, as readers, know the identity of Jesus from the very first line, but none of the characters in the story know who Jesus is. They get hints, they get glimpses throughout the book, so there's a suspense, this tension between the reader's knowledge, your knowledge as you're reading this book, and the ignorance of the actors. And we know from the very beginning that Jesus is the Christ, that is, he's the anointed one, he's the king, He's the Son of God, and the gospel pertains and concerns Him. But ironically, no one else knows in the story. But as Mark's story quickly progresses, everyone starts to gather. Jesus is no ordinary teacher. He's no ordinary rabbi. He's no ordinary prophet. He's no ordinary miracle worker. The only way that people can actually begin to describe Jesus and what is, is by saying that Jesus has this exousia, that Jesus has, is that the Greek word for authority? Jesus has this weighty, powerful authority. So in Mark chapter 1, when Jesus is preaching in the synagogue, and a demoniac steps up and begins to scream and shout, and Jesus casts the demon out and says to the demon, shut up and come out of the man, and the demon listens and obeys, everyone marvels, and, they amaze, and they're amazed, and then they begin to question among themselves in verse 27, what is this? A new teaching with Exousia. This is a new teaching with authority. Jesus' words have authority. He says something, and then it happens. And then the story progresses. And the authority of Jesus kind of starts getting steamrolling. And the authority of Jesus begins to lay claims to the prerogatives of God that otherwise have only belonged to God. Meaning, he binds Satan, the strong man, which only God can do. He forgives sins, which only God can do. He has supreme authority over Torah and the Sabbath, which only God has. And so his authority is pressing its claim a little further than anyone else had ever thought. See, people, you and I, maybe our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, most people, not, not everyone, but I'd say most people don't have a problem with Jesus' teachings. See, Jesus is a teacher. We're all good with Jesus as the teacher. We think that he was a great teacher. He had some really good things to say. So if you just bring up Jesus about his teachings, everybody's like, all right, all right, I'll bro down with you about that. We'll talk about Jesus' teachings. That's cool. People don't normally have a problem with Jesus' miracles and his good works. Jesus did really good works. Everybody's like, okay, okay, we'll give you that. People don't normally have a problem with Jesus' example of love or turning the other cheek and his sacrifice. People are like, okay, okay, I get it. He's a lover. He was a great example. He turned the other cheek. 
to where people have the problem, where maybe you have a problem, where I had a problem at one time, is when, and, I, and it comes up occasionally, is when it comes down to Jesus' authority. That's where we really have the problem. The authority of Jesus. Now I'm going I'm to press you a little bit here. See, as long as those things that Jesus teaches and he does do not have any bearing on me personally, and they don't press in on my independence, whether a Christian or a non-Christian, then we're good. That's normally how most of us think. If Jesus' teachings and his claim and his love and his, his example don't press in on my life personally, if I can just take what I like about Jesus and that's it, we're good. If I can make Jesus, if Jesus can make me nicer or make me, allow me to marry up, maybe, then we're really cool. If you can give me a better job or make me more, more humane or more compassionate, then we're good with Jesus. I'm good with that. But if you're saying that Jesus' authority presses in on my life and demands something from me, that's where we have beef. That's where we have a problem. If you're saying that Jesus has, ha, presses it on my life and makes me to do something, and his authority presses it on my own authority, whether it's with who I date or whether it's where I work or what I do in my work or how I treat other people or how I live my life or my, my finances, if Jesus presses it on those things, now we have a problem. But if you keep Jesus out here and let him do whatever he wants and I just like grab a couple of his teachings and bring him in and he makes me a little bit better of a person, then, then we're okay. So this is the exact problem that the, the authorities had in Mark chapter 12. The Sanhedrin go up to Jesus. Now, they're on the Temple Mount. Jesus is now in the last week of his life. The Sanhedrin, which was made up of the Jewish religious and political power, made up of 71 leaders, came up to question Jesus about his authority. And this is what they say in verse 28. By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Now, these things, that, that means they, they refer to everything that Jesus has done so far in, in the book of Mark. Especially tossing around furniture, as we looked at last week. Who gives you authority to walk in the temple and throw over money changers' tables and kick people out? Who, who gives you the authority in the temple to do that? We're the Sanhedrin. We run this joint. Who gives you the authority to do this, Jesus? Who do you think you are? Where do you get the right to press in on our space? This is our temple, our space. We control this. Where do you get the right to press in on our lives, challenge our authority, our rule, our independence? So in order to answer this question, Jesus doesn't defend himself. He reveals himself. He doesn't defend. He doesn't go, okay, you want to fight? I, I'm a good fighter. I can take you out. He doesn't go, let me defend. Let me give you all these things that I am. And why I'm way better. He just reveals who he really is. And this is beautiful and marvelous because Jesus doesn't do that up to this point. Remember, the dramatic irony of this whole story. We know who Jesus is, but no one else really knows. But here in Jerusalem, in the last week of his life, Jesus reveals who he really is. And Jesus does this through story. I love this. He does it through parable. And we know this as the parable of the tenants. Now, a parable reveals the nature, this parable reveals the nature of, and the character of the Father and the Son, and also our nature as well. And there's two major movements in the story, and I want to just pick up on these two major movements in the story. The first major movement is ascending of the Son, 
And the second is the tenant's decision. Their decision. First ascending of the Son. Jesus shares this parable about absentee land ownership. If you guys remember the parable that we just read. Meaning, a, a farmer owns a vineyard, a really nice vineyard that makes really good wine, and he's, he, he planted it, and then he leased out this property to tenant farmers, or stewards. They were given charge over these places. These tenant farmers worked at the owner's expense. This did not, land did not belong to them. They worked it for this owner. And the tenant's responsibility was to cultivate the vines and take care and manage the vineyard. So, good fruit would be brought forth from this land. That was their responsibility as a steward and a tenant, to present good fruit to their owner. So every harvest season, the owner would send a steward or a messenger, a servant, to collect the produce. What was rightfully the landowner's produce? Now, there's a bigger story going on here. Now, there's always a bigger story going on in parables. So when Jesus tells the story, you and I go, a vineyard, okay, no big deal, what does that mean? In the Old Testament, there is a very, a very dominant biblical uh, metaphor. And the metaphor was this. Israel was a vineyard. Actually, on the temple doors, there was this golden vine engraved on the temple doors. Israel was a vineyard. It was the most predominant. This, this, this picture of Israel as a vineyard was most predominant in the book of Isaiah. And it's done in song. And I love this song. If you're in theater, you would probably appreciate this. Isaiah breaks out in song, and he writes a song for Israel. He's like, Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1. He writes, let me sing a song for my beloved, a love song concerning his vineyard. So Isaiah goes, let me share a prophecy with you, but in song. It'd be like someone walked up to you. I don't know if anyone's ever written you a song. It's like, I wrote you a song. Like, you did? Well, thank you. What, what is a song? It's like, it's called Love Hurts. <laughs> and it goes something like this. And he, Like, it would be really, I was like, whoa, wait. Wait, I thought this was a love song. What well, is? You are my love, and love hurts, and love scars, and I hate you, and all this. This is kind of like that. It's like, hey, there's a love song for you. You want to hear the love song? You're like, oh, yeah, tell me the love song. Here it goes something like this. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, and he cleared away its stones, and he planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower. That's, what, that's the parable that Jesus uses as well. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. But it only yielded bad fruit. I had a vine, a vineyard, and I, and I planted these grape vines. And I went there to look at this group, and its fruit was rotten. And everything was gross. Do you like my love song? This, is, this audience knew this verse in Isaiah. The Sanhedrin knew this. It was a very familiar metaphor. And this is the metaphor that Jesus borrows from. He's saying, let me tell you a parable about a vineyard and a landowner who builds this vat, keeps his wine, he plants all this precious vine. And harvest time came. And the landowner sends a messenger, a servant, to go and inspect the fruit and actually to grab some fruit and take it back. But the tenant farmers who are watching over this field take this servant and they beat him and they send him away empty-handed as if to say to the owner, hey, you're not getting what you want. You want fruit? You're not going to get any fruit from us. So the landowner sent another messenger, another servant. And the tenant farmers took this guy and they beat him more severely. They beat in his head, it says. And they sent him back. And then the, the, the landowner's persistent. He sends another servant, but this servant doesn't come back. He dies. They kill him. 
and they probably hang his body up so other servant messengers can see this message. But the landowner is even more persistent, and he sends another and another and another and another servant to the vineyard. And they all come back, beat badly, or they all die. Vineyard, this vineyard is Israel. The messengers are the prophets. And God keeps sending prophet after prophet after prophet to Israel, and they keep killing or beating or ignoring the prophecies of God. See, the only thing the vineyard owner has reaped so far from his precious vineyard is insults and mockery and death. But the owner has one more card up his sleeve, Jesus says. So there he's like kind of reeling him into the story. They're like, okay, tell us more, tell us more. Oh, but the owner has one more card up his sleeve. He has one more thing, one more way he could get these people to give up what he owns. One last resort. The landowner sends his own beloved son. Now, when the Sanhedrin asked Jesus where he gets his authority, Jesus turned and asked them a question. It's a very good way to argue. Let me ask you a question. And actually answering this question will answer their question. And this is the question. Was the ministry of John the Baptist from God or from man? Was the ministry of John the Baptist from God or from man? Now, we met John the Baptist in Mark chapter 1. If, you've, if you were here or if you've ever read... Uh, the book of Mark in its entirety. We met John the Baptist in John chapter and Mark chapter 1, and we also met Jesus in Mark chapter 1. In Mark 1, verse 5, it says, And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to John the Baptist and were being baptized by John in the Jordan, confessing their sins. So all of Israel were meeting John the Baptist in the river Jordan, and all of them were going there, confessing their sins, and then being baptized. And in verse 9, it says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Mark draws a parallel right at the very beginning of his gospel. He draws a parallel that will keep and it will continue until the very end of the book of Mark. And the parallel is this. Jesus is identifying with all Israel and all humanity. Jesus represents the true Israel who would be completely obedient to the Father. Jesus is showing complete solidarity with people. He had committed no sin. He had no need to repent. It says that all the people were going down to the River Jordan to confess their sins, but Jesus was going down to begin a ministry of dying for their sin. And look at what happens when Jesus comes out of the water. So Jesus goes into the water. John Another gospel writer says he reluctantly baptized you. I, I can't baptize you. You should be baptizing me. Jesus says, no, that the scripture may be fulfilled, baptize me. And so John did. And it says in verse 10 in chapter 1, and when he came up out of the water, Jesus, when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven saying, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Heaven here is literally torn open. When the Old Testament uses this sort of language, it means that God is about to speak or God is about to act when the heavens are torn open. God are about, is about to, to, to make his purposes known. In Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1, before Ezekiel starts his prophecy, he says, the heavens were opened and I saw, and he goes on to say what he saw. Meaning God is revealing something here. However, this wasn't heaven simply being opened, it was being torn open. 
like Isaiah prayed in Isaiah chapter 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens. You would tear heaven and come down. The prophet Isaiah prays that the barrier between heaven and earth would be torn open and God would be among his people. Mark is saying that this is exactly what's happening in Jesus. In Jesus, the fabric of heaven is torn open and God is among us. It's like when Jesus is here, all heaven breaks loose. So why is this so important? Why is this important in Mark's story? Why is this important that Jesus referred back to John the Baptist? Well, first of all, look at where Jesus is standing when he's in the, in the Jordan River. He's standing right where everyone else has left their mess. Everyone goes down to the River Jordan to confess their sins and be baptized. Their sins, where they had symbolically had washed their sins away, he steps right into that, like stepping into their dirty, spiritual bathwater. And Jesus steps right into their mess and stands in the river where, where the water kind of symbolically washed away their sins. And he goes into that water, allowing polluted water by people's sins to be poured over his perfect being. In the Old Testament, when really epic moments happen around the sea or the ocean, the ocean or the sea parts, like the Red Sea in Exodus, or the Jordan River with Joshua, or Jordan River again with Elijah. But it doesn't happen here. The Jordan doesn't part when Jesus steps into it. The heavens part. It's not so much a sign that we have access to God at this point. It's that God has access to us. God takes on flesh. The metaphysical becomes physical. The word becomes flesh. God steps into our world. The Father sends his Son into our vineyard. This is what happens at the baptism of John. So, if the Sanhedrin said John's ministry was from man, and it was all a fraud, the crowd would actually turn against the Sanhedrin. Because everyone believed that John was a prophet, and prophets are from God. And the Sanhedrin feared the crowd, so they would never ever say that John the Baptist was not a prophet. But, if they said that John the Baptist was legit, that they would confirm that Jesus is the Son of God. And they would know where his power comes from. But here's a huge question when it comes to the vineyard. I don't know if, if you picked up on this, if you maybe asked yourself this. Here's a huge question from the parable. Why send your son? If they beat and killed everyone else, why expose yourself? Why make yourself vulnerable? Why send your only beloved son? You think the landowner would, would maybe send a hitman or send the big guns or send the, an army. But he doesn't. He sends his only son. And the word send here has, in this parable, carries the idea of divine compassion. One commentator called this the blessed idiocy of grace. It almost seems foolish how much grace this father has. He keeps sending people after person, after man, after servant, and then he finally sends his son. What you and I are supposed to see here really vividly is the long-suffering patience of God. No matter how unreturned his love is, how God relentlessly pursues us, it also reveals God's continuous pursuit of humanity. No matter how many times you've rejected God. He keeps sending messengers. He keeps sending servants. He keeps sending friends. He keeps sending church invites. He keeps sending all of these things 
after all the violence and all the rejection, even sends his beloved son. When I first, when I was in high school, there was, I started to, um, I, I made a decision to begin to go to church. I have no idea why I did this. I partied every single weekend. Saturday night, I would party, and wherever I woke up, I woke up in the most random places Sunday morning. I made some weird decision that I was going to wake up and go to church. So I would go to church, and I would begin to grab my friends. And we were a pearly, pretty weird group of people to walk in on a, in church. We didn't shower. We didn't get ready. We didn't know all the etiquette that you had to go. But we just all showed up, and all of us were, like, exhausted and tired and j- had just woken up and really, really wanted a donut. And so they had them there, so that was really cool. Um, and so we, we would show up at church, and I have no idea to this day why I decided I decided to do that or whatever outside of the seeking saving, pursuing nature of God. How God relentlessly pursues us. He sends person after thought, after, after message, after all these things, He keeps pursuing us and pursuing us. And we see that here. But the parable gets really, really bad. Because look at what these tenants do. When the landowner sent his servants, he was appealing to the tenant's integrity. He's like, I'm going to send my servant to him, and I'm going to say, please pay what you owe. Please pay what you owe. You you said you would pay. Please pay what you owe. And he was appealing to their integrity. But when the landowner sent his only son, he was appealing to the law. For the son was the only one who had the legal claim of the vineyard outside of the the, the landowner. He was the only one who had legal claim to it. it. It belonged to him. So he sent his only son going, this land is my dad's land. The landowner thought, they're going to respect my son because he's my son. That word respect refers to people humbling themselves. They're going to see my son and they're going to humble themselves. Meaning, they're going to see that he's my son and he has authority and he's, they're going to humble him themselves. But they don't. And what they actually do when they see the son is they, they think, oh my gosh, the son has legal rights to the vineyard. Let's kill him and then it'll be ours. Let's make what's his ours. And what Jesus is saying to the Sanhedrin is very shocking through this parable. They actually get it. They get what he's saying. I mean, they, 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 they smell what he's cooking. They know what he's trying to say. Or even at the end of it, they're like, Whoa, what are you saying against us? He's saying this. Jesus is saying to the Sanhedrin, you work for me. I own the vineyard. I own this temple. I own everything you see. I have ultimate authority and not you. I have legal right and you do not. And because of this truth, you're going to kill me. I own this and because I do own this, you're going to kill me. And they're like, oh my gosh, what did you say? Because of that, we're going to kill you. The vineyard in this parable is not a human possession. The vineyard in this parable isn't even Israel's possession. The vineyard in this parable is God's possession. God owns this vineyard. And this is what this means. This is what this is the bigger story of this parable. You don't belong to you. You don't belong to your job. Some of you guys really need to hear that. You don't you might need to say that in the mirror in the morning to yourself. I don't belong to my job. You don't belong to your spouse 
or your past or your family. You belong to God. That's what this parable is saying. You're his possession. Your stuff doesn't belong to you either. It's not your job. Your job doesn't belong to you. You're like, okay, my job might not own me, but I I own my job. It's my job. It's not your money. Your money doesn't belong to you. Your time doesn't belong to you. Your talents don't belong to you. They belong to God. And you know what they are? They're loaned to you. They're given to you and you are a steward. They're given to you to use for God's glory. Everything that you have, your money, your time, your property, everything that you think you have, you don't really have. They are owned by God. But if you think you do have them, they actually own you. That's the irony. Your stuff doesn't belong to you. But we have this awful habit of hijacking what belongs to God. We think, if if I can get rid of Jesus and his authority over my money... If I can get rid of Jesus' authority over my sex life, over my job, then I can be my own God. Then I can do whatever the heck I want to do. And this is the sum total of human history. Attempting to rid the universe of God. And we think that we can seize control of everything in our lives and push God out of the picture completely. I mean, do these tenants really think that if they killed the son, the vineyard would be theirs? Apparently they thought they, that, that that would happen. I mean, do you really think that by erasing God from your life, you can take control of your own destiny? That you can have what you really, really want? You and I love freedom. I remember when I I got my first first car, when I got my license and I got my first car. I don't know if many of you guys grew up in the city where you didn't really get a first car. You got like a a clipper card or whatever. I don't know. But... But if you, if you grew up outside and you got, like, your first car, the first, like, sign of freedom. Like, my mom didn't have to take me everywhere. If I wanted to turn right and stop at the 7-Eleven to get nachos, I could. And then there's this liberating freedom that comes from that. The first time that my parents let uh, Ash, my, my wife now, but we were, we were dating in, in high school, to, to do, like, a, a little like a little trip outside of, of our town. We went, like, a 45 minutes uh, north and went to the Red Lobster. Because it just felt like we were so free. We could do whatever we want. I have a car and a license. And our parents said that we can go to Red Lobster. And so we did. And we felt, I just remember feeling so, so independent then. And we love our freedom. And what we do is we want to get out of every authority figure. If our teachers, our professors, our boss, they try to press their authority on us, we hate it. And when Jesus does it, there's something in our flesh that goes, I hate when people press it. I want freedom. I want freedom in everything I do. If my roommates try to hold me accountable. Like, don't hold me accountable. You're an idiot too. And I don't want to, I don't want, I don't, I don't want to live with my, I don't live with my parents anymore. Don't tell me what to do. We hate, hate authority over our lives. We don't want, we, we, we want, we want to feel mature. We want to feel like we, we can do anything we want to do. We love it so much. We love freedom so much in our lives that we often become enslaved to freedom. We come, become enslaved to what freedom does. We want freedom so bad that we become enslaved to violence to get freedom, or greed to get freedom, or pride, or coveting to get freedom. 
It makes us think that our desires should be fulfilled at all costs, that our dreams need to be fulfilled at all costs. Whatever it costs to make my dreams a reality, I will do that. We might exploit another person. We might treat them horribly. We might even reject Jesus. But if it gets us what we really want, I might lose a marriage or a kid or a friend or a Lord. But if I get what I want, I don't care. That's what these tenant farmers were doing with this vineyard. We want this vineyard so bad that we will kill to keep it. A lot of us want our own lives so bad. We want our own dreams so bad that we would lose anything to get it. Anything. If it meant lying or cheating in work, we would do that in a heartbeat. If it meant losing our family, and some people even do this under the banner of God. I just want to be used in ministry, and I want to do all these great ministry things. Even if it means losing my family, I'll do it. Even if it means losing friends, I'll step over them to get there. We do this with all areas of our lives. And it's wicked to the core. And the way that Jesus ends this parable is not with a parable, but actually a verse of Scripture against them. And he says this in verse 10. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The cornerstone is the most important part of any structure. It's the stone that the rest of the foundation was built upon and measured up to. I mean, what did the Sanhedrin base their life upon? When Jesus asked them about John the Baptist, they didn't answer because they lied. It says they didn't want to answer because they knew if they answered, it would catch them in the truth. So they lied about it. They said, we don't know. Very profound answer. We don't know. But they did know. But they didn't want to answer because they feared the crowds. Why? Because they built their life on the opinion of men. Their cornerstone was the praise and the acceptance of people. So everything that was a threat to the praise and the acceptance and the popularity of people, everything that was a threat to that became a threat to them. See, whatever we build our life upon, if something threatens that, it threatens us. And it shakes our whole life. If your whole pursuit of, in life, your whole cornerstone that you're building your life upon is acceptance, when anything comes in and, and shakes that up, then your whole life falls apart. It starts to threaten your security, your hope. If your whole life is about knowing the future and, and having security and having a, that, that certain amount of money in the savings account, anything that threatens that threatens you, and your whole life falls apart. Even if Jesus threatens that, even if Jesus would come to you and say, let that go, he becomes a threat. The Sanhedrin was threatened by Jesus' power. They were threatened by Jesus' authority. So they rejected Jesus. And what it says here is the stone, the cornerstone, Jesus, that they rejected is actually what they need to build their life upon. It's the most important piece, and they rejected it. By rejecting Jesus, they rejected life and salvation and hope and fruitfulness because Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is sent of God and by God. He didn't, he wasn't sent with guns blazing. He didn't, he wasn't sent to come and condemn everyone. He was sent to die. 
John 3.16, I'm pretty sure you've heard this millions of times, but let me read it again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He sent his son into the vineyard. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Very important. Don't miss this part. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't send his son into the vineyard to come in and destroy. But in order that the world might be saved. The reason why God sent his son into the world is that you and I would be delivered. We would be delivered by trying to build our lives on all these other cornerstones. We'd be delivered in our lives from trying to fill our lives with all this, all these things and, 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 and using people to get what we really want. He's come to deliver us from ourselves and from this world. And he's come in and it's a beautiful, it's marvelous. And that's, when you see Jesus as that, it becomes marvelous. And then what happens is through every single thing, as you walk with Jesus, Jesus becomes more marvelous in your eyes and more marvelous and more marvelous and more marvelous. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much that that you've, you've come into our world, into the, our vineyard, and that you have died, you have taken our pain and our sacrifice for us, Lord, and in and, turn and, and you've exchanged it for life. And it's marvelous in our eyes. I pray that you would deliver people from resisting you. Those in here this morning who have resisted you after week after week after week after year, that today they wouldn't. There is a really strong warning. There's one day, there's, there's coming a judge. We will stand before you. We know that. I think we all intuitively know that. Thank you that you sent a rescuer. I pray that you would rescue us, God.